Well, let's take a look. Um, thank you, Steve, for reading that passage for us this morning. And let's take a look at what's going on here in the book of Acts as Paul is ending his third missionary journey, at least of the journeys that uh, Luke has recorded for us in the book of Acts. And he's at Ephesus. And Ephesus is, actually he's in Miletus, which is close to Ephesus. Ephesus is 30 miles northeast of Miletus. And Paul has called for the elders to come down from Ephesus and meet with him in Miletus. Now compare that earlier in the chapter in verse one, he was calling out to talk to the disciples, it says. Here he's talking to a specific group and is the leaders or the elders of the church that he's calling for. That term elders is the word presbyteros, and that's where we get the term bishop, um, but it's also something that we might be familiar in our culture as Presbyterian. And so um, when we talk about church polity or how church or churches are governed, there's some, some common forms that maybe you're familiar with. And the first one is the Presbyterian form based upon that term presbyteros, which is used right here in this passage. And that presbyteros is the, the uh, definition of a, a group that is ruled by elders. There's either a local group of elders or in some cases a denominational group of elders. Um, but that's the idea of Presbyterian style of government of churches. We see that here in America and many places. Another term that gets used later on by Paul is the term episkopos. And that's where there's not just one local group, but there's uh, several groups uh, that have more of an area. And this is when there, there's a ruling by a group of bishops, not individual bishops, but a group of bishops. And usually those bishops have what's called a diocese or an area that they're covering. We see this in many forms in churches today around here in the Methodist church, the Episcopal church, the Anglican church, and similar churches to them. And then there's another type of episcopacy called mono-episcopacy. It's a little more beyond the regular Episcopal type church. Um, and that's where they add to the bishops, there's this trifecta. So they add to the bishops the cardinals, and they are functioning as the elders of the church. And then ultimate authority, though, is given to one leader, and that's what they call the, quote, vicar on Christ on earth, the vicar of Christ on earth. And they would say that's the pope. And we see that in the Catholic church. It's also similar in the Roman Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, and many other churches. And the last one that's very common is congregational. And the congregational form is a democratic system where there's a communal self-rule. There's an independent constitution usually at each of those churches. And they use that to rule, but there's also the popular representation, very similar to what we have in America as part of our government system. And the types of churches that you might be familiar with that have a congregational rule is Baptist, Quaker, many Lutheran churches, and several others. But here what we see in verses 17 and 18 is Paul's recognition of what he likes to see in church government. And we see that working in a team is important to Paul. And he's giving high priority to training others to do the work. And he's recognizing that in team ministry, leaders will not do everything that needs to be done by themselves. There's no need in Paul's economy for church government 
for there to be a sheriff CEO who comes riding in and lays down the law. There's none of that. But instead, uh, Paul's idea of leadership will depend a lot on others. And a leader will depend a lot on others. This is why Paul called on the elders, plural, of Ephesus to come to Miletus. So his ideal form of church government was local eldership and a plurality of leaders. And these leaders all had equality of status with each other. And we're gonna see here as he's handing over the functioning of the church, they, Paul puts them on an equal role to him. And so that's why he says later to Titus, one of his um, uh, mentorships that he's doing. He says to Titus in Titus 1.5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. And so the elders were there locally, not someplace far removed from the local flock or congregation. They were right there with the flock. But that leads us to ask a couple questions today. Because that term elder can be confusing and a lot of people have a mystique to it or feel that it's very institutional. Um, there's questions of misunderstanding of what do you mean an elder? My brother is two and a half years older than me. Is he my elder? Um, is that what Paul's talking about? Um, hi, Tim, if you're watching, by the way. Um, but here what the Bible references the idea of an elder being an office of church leadership. An elder is a position most commonly used in the definition of elder in scripture. And we're gonna see that that's equated with another term in this passage as we get down to, verse, to later verses, the idea of being an overseer. And when we talk about an elder and what Paul's talking about here is that elders are overseers. He tells them they are overseers. And so an elder is the position or the office of church leadership and an overseer is, is describing the function of an elder. An elder oversees. An elder is overseeing, and overseeing is the task that is performed by an elder. And what the, the elder is overseeing is he's overseeing the flock, or he's pastoring the flock. Or the term can be equated with the idea of shepherding. And so we see that as we go through uh, this passage, what Paul's encouraging the elders to do, and what he's encouraging them to be. And you get down to verse 28, and Paul says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So Paul's functioning in their church, specifically in Ephesus, is being handed over for them to exercise in the same role that he demonstrated in his life. And all the elders are of the same status, there's not one who's greater or higher than the others. And all have the same prerequisites. We find those later in Paul's writing in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. But right here, we also see that Paul is discreetly laying down some prerequisites by his own way of example in his life. And so he's called them down, and he's, he's commissioning, he's handing over the ministry to them. And he says... Uh, through a speech, he gives a sermon. And so what we have recorded for us here by Luke is the first and only sermon in the book of Acts 
given to specifically Christian believers. Nowhere else in the book of Acts is there a, a sermon or a speech given strictly to Christians. Paul gives a sermon to Jews. Um, he gives a sermon to Greeks. Um, sometimes he does a defense to the authorities. There are times where he and Peter give an evangelistic speech to non-believers. But here it is specifically to a group of believers that happen to be overseers. But for some reason, Luke has recorded it for all of us. We all get to get in on this nugget that Paul has for the church. And so Paul's love is demonstrated in the next uh, part of the sermon as he's going along in, in verses 19 through 21. He uses his own life as an example. And he, he says, you know, you know. This is a connection to the past. They obviously knew his life. He had spent and, and, and gave a lot of effort and labored over their salvation and over their walk with the Lord. And what was it that they knew about Paul? We're gonna see some things. But Paul is constantly asking people to look at his example. In Philippians 3.17, he says, Brothers, <clears throat> join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Well, what was it that they knew? What was true about their observations of Paul's life? And so he starts out, I'm going to pull out seven things for you that I see that um, Paul brings out as part of his example. Excuse me. <clears throat> I've seen you do that before, Ken. So I, I knew it was okay for me to do that. The first thing that Paul starts off with in verse 19 is he says serving. He's a servant. He's serving the Lord. Paul was often introduced as a servant, even as a bond servant, <clears throat> and the Ephesians were well familiar with all that he had done to serve them. And so Paul's example was um, an example of, of servant leadership. In Romans 1.1, Paul is introduced as Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul was known as a servant. I mean, we could spend hours talking about that and giving examples of that. But they were familiar with that aspect of Paul's life. The next part is that he uses the term in humbleness, with all humility. And this is common of Paul to give that exhortation in other places in his writings. But here he's, he's using it as an example. But in Romans 12, 16, he says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, and never be wise in your own sight. Paul called people for, to humility. Philippians 2, 3 through 5 reminds us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant to you than yourselves. And let each of you not only look out for his own interests, but also to the interest of others. And have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Just as Jesus Christ was humble, Paul just demonstrated humble. He's now calling the elders to be humble. The next thing we see true about Paul's leadership is that he was emotionally connecting. It says that he did this with tears as he served in humbleness. And this is a display of affection. 
And this display will come out for us in verses 36 through 38, but as it's evidenced in the behavior, we see it, there was loud weeping, embracing and grieving with each other, amongst each other. There's this connection, and it shows with Paul that there was a cultural and an intellectual engagement as well, not just an emotional one. And it's part of what I call the, the thinking-feeling cycle. And we don't have time to do biblical counseling with you to this morning, but you may be familiar with the feeling-thinking cycle. How we think about something affects how we feel about it. How we feel about it affects how we behave towards it. In other words, how I feel about my, or what I think about myself affects how I feel about myself, which affects how I behave. What others think about me affects how I feel about what they think about me, which affects how I behave towards them. You see the cycle? And it goes around and around and around. But there's this connection between thinking and feeling that goes with behavior. And here we see in Paul that his behavior brought him to the emotional point of saying, I'm going to behave emotionally with you. In 1 Thessalonians 2a, as he was writing to the Thessalonian church, he says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. There was an emotional connection with the people in Thessalonica, Thessalonica that Paul had that caused him to behave a certain way towards them. And one aspect that commonly gets overlooked when seeking out leadership in the church, oftentimes is the emotional intelligence quotient of a leader. Overseers need to have a good emotional intelligence quotient. It's vital to a healthy ministry, and it's vital to our healthy relationships. Husbands, just ask your wives. Paul was not afraid to be emotional with them. Next we see that he says that part of his leadership was total sacrifice. He gave physically, emotionally, financially, I think, in many other ways he sacrificed, and he did it through fear and trembling in verse 19, and that's why I say it was a sacrifice. And it was because of the many trials that he faced, he says. And in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29, we hear about a lot of those trials that he faced, right? There's a whole list of them. It says, am I talking like a madman, but with farther, far greater labors and far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death? Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked for a day and a night. I was adrift for a day and a night at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, 
There is a deadly pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul was suffering emotional duress when he said, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety. That was one of the sacrifices that he made. He also suffered physically and put himself under physical constraint. In 1 Corinthians 9, 27, it says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So he had these physical constraints that he, he just had to sacrifice some things. We also know that he had physical maladies, sickness, going without food, all of these constraints. We also know that he suffered psychological issues. Later in Hebrews 10, 39, he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's talking about here that we have gotten to the point that we are able to survive psychologically. When Paul talks about total sacrifice, it was his whole life, it was everything. It wasn't just his teaching. It wasn't just that he got up and and taught them God's word. He gave his whole life, as we read in in the Thessalonian passage. And so, emotional duress, physical constraint, psychological endurance, these are all things that Paul was willing to, to get out of the box and not be afraid to suffer those things. And then he moves on and he talks about the teaching. And he says the type of teaching that he gave was transparent and thorough in verses 20 through 21. Luke uses the term testifying here. Um, it's an interesting word, but it's, it's used nine time, times in the book of Acts. It'd be an interesting study to go further on and, and do a topical study on testi- testifying. But it's used three times right here in this chapter. And what is it that Paul's testifying to? <clears throat> The first thing we see is that he's testifying that um, the scripture is relevant to whatever needs you have. He says, I was teaching you anything that was helpful, whether it be to Timothy with a medical condition, whether it be to the Ephesians uh, with with their uh, need for marital and family relationship counseling whether it be to the Thessalonians who were spiritually confused and distraught about the Lord's coming. Whatever it was, Paul was willing to teach on it. Whatever was relevant, God's word was applicable to. And the second thing that he's testifying about his teaching is that it was full of grace. Literally testifying the grace, the gospel of grace and the fact that that gospel of grace is able to build you up as a believer. And so Paul says later in verse 27, he says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, the whole will of God, the whole thing, not just love, but also God's wrath, God's mercy, God's justice, and we can go on and on and on but it's presentation of the whole Christ, not just part of what Christ is, but all of Christ, all of the scripture, all of the needs that you and I have that God meets through his son and through his word. It's the whole Christ. 
And then Paul moves on and says in verse 20 and 21 that he was ministering the word publicly and privately. Paul gave the example of those who not only speak in public situations, but also are connected privately, individually with people. Paul was in the synagogues regularly. Oftentimes he was in the marketplace, but he was also in the homes as we saw earlier on in Acts. In biblical terms, there's no place for a specialist evangelist who concentrates solely on his public ministry, leaving personal ministry to others, never to be concerned at a personal or individual level. It was one of the frustrations I saw on the mission field in doing short-term missions where we would come in and we would share the gospel with hundreds of thousands of people and then we would leave town and who was there to follow up? Who was there to connect with them personally? Paul did both. He ministered publicly and privately. The next thing we notice about Paul's example is that he was nonpartisan in his presentation. He says that my presentation was to Jew and Greek. In Paul's mind, all equally had the same need, no matter what party they were of. Everybody needed repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. And so when Paul was confronted with a situation where favoritism was shown to one party versus another, he admonished, he reprimanded, he exhorted. In Galatians 2, 11 and 12, it says, but when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. With Paul, you needed to go beyond the partisanship. We need to do that too. But Paul's example in his leadership was not to just be a Republican or a Democrat. It wasn't just to be a leftist or a conservative right winger. All had the same need. And Paul gives all of these things as examples of his leadership and they knew, they had seen that in his life and he uses that as an example to the Ephesians. And then he switches gears in verses 22 through 27. And Paul seems to be being led by the spirit of prophecy and he's starting to give out some things of the future and there's a connection to the future now. We see it in the idea of Paul saying and not knowing what lies ahead, but he also says, but I know. I I know something of the future, but I don't know. You ever feel that way? (laughs) You ever feel that way with the Holy Spirit? But three things that come to mind are three questions we might ask. How is he being led and why and where and when? And who's doing the leading? And so the first question we ask as we see Paul dealing with is moving towards Jerusalem. But is he? (laughs) He immediately takes off and goes a different way instead of going towards Jerusalem. He ends up there. Um, But also we know that after he goes to Jerusalem later, He then goes back and goes beyond Jerusalem. And he mentions it actually in the chapter before, in chapter 19, that he's on his way to Rome. (laughs) So why is he saying, I'm going to Jerusalem now? 
because the Spirit's leading him. And in Acts chapter 19, it said, now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. He said that while he was at Ephesus, where these elders were from. And so he's talking now in chapter 20, like, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, and I know some bad things are gonna happen there, and it's starting to sound a little bit like Jesus. They're gonna kill me. I don't know. It might be. Um, And they're they're all worried. They're, like, afraid. What's gonna happen, Paul? So the Spirit's leading him. We know that. And we know that the Spirit's going to lead him to Jerusalem eventually. But we have to also ask the question, whose spirit? Have you ever had a conflict with someone over what the Spirit was telling you? Maybe telling you what to do? (laughs) Well, you're in good company. And it seems that Paul was having that same issue going on. Because it says that he sort of knew, but he didn't know. In verse 22, he says, I don't know. And in verse 23, he says that he does know. And then we see in verse 25 that he does know. And yet now, in verse 29, he knows even more. Um, It's confusing. What's going on here, Paul? Is this because of things that's happening in your spirit? Or is the Holy Spirit just not being clear? In the last chapter, Paul purposed in his heart or resolved. It was his spirit. It was within him. It was his heart. So we have to ask the question as he's talking about this, and and we ask the question for ourselves whenever we're we're battling what it is we think the Holy Spirit's leading us to do. Whose spirit is it? Is it my spirit, or is it the Holy Spirit that's actually leading me? So was it his spirit, or was it the Holy Spirit? Paul talks about the testifying of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's why I think the word testifying in this passage is, is very interesting. But in Romans eight sixteen, he says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. When it comes to being led by the Spirit in a prophetical sense as to you need to go do something or do this or say that, it is always best, according to Romans chapter eight, that there is a convergence between my spirit and the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul is wrestling with here, I think. And that's what I think the Ephesian elders were wrestling with and why they have such an emotional reaction to this. And the last question we ask about all of this is for what purpose? As I said already, um, there is this, this concept that's kind of lingering there, maybe came up in your mind, as you're reading this passage, that Paul's going to Jerusalem to be killed. Um, But he wasn't necessarily going to Jerusalem to be killed because the Spirit already told him he's gonna go to Rome. And later in chapter 23, we're told that he's going to go to Rome. It says in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, but on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must go and witness at Rome also. So the Holy Spirit does tell him that you're gonna go to Rome. So this has to do with the ministry that Paul received. And Paul says in Acts chapter 20, He says, so that I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
He was given this ministry. He received a ministry, and he calls it in other places. He calls it the race. He wants to finish his job. He wants to run the race and complete the race, and we're familiar with that concept from 2 Timothy 4 and 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Paul has a task to do, and that is to complete his job of declaring the gospel to the known world at that time. And so Paul goes through that example of his own life, and then he starts to move from the past to the future and say, this is what's coming, and then he makes a connection from the you know, I know, and then he moves on to one more I know, but it's connected to the here and now, and that is the present. He's saying, as soon as I leave, which was happening that day, as soon as I leave, he says, this is already among you. And he makes the connection to the present. And so he says, and he, he gives a declaration of these battle lines as he um, commissions or calls the elders to a challenge. And he says, um, you need to watch over yourselves. Watch over yourselves. This is Paul's warning in 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul told to Timothy as he was training him for ministry, he said, keep close watch on yourself and then also your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Many people in ministry are so others-minded that they forget to look after themselves. I'm probably one of those. It's happened a couple times in my life. But that is usually where the most attention is needed. A.W. Tozer, in his ministry, said when asked about who you pray for in your ministry, he said, do you know who I pray for the most in my pastoral work? Just myself. We need to make sure that we are so aware as leaders of who we are and what we're being that we do not come in the way of the ministry that needs to happen. Success in ministry is not necessarily determined by such things as technological quality or popularity or having the ability to balance budgets as much as it is in knowing yourself and knowing one's strengths and weaknesses. Paul is charging the elders to be good leaders by making sure that they are good examples themselves. And so in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, Peter agrees with Paul's statement about elders. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but by being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Along with Paul, Peter is agreeing that the shepherd's role, the, the elder's role, the overseer's role, first and foremost, is to be an example to the flock. 
checking out your motivations. The second thing Paul tells them to watch over is the flock. And he's telling them here to pasture the flock. The word is poimeno. It has to do with taking the sheep out to the field to eat. It's feeding the sheep. And all elders and overseers are pastors on the same level. We have a board of elders here that some of us are pastors. We're called pastors. We're on staff. And some are what we call lay elders. But they really are pastors. They're overseeing the flock. They're taking you out to the field to, to be fed. They're looking after the sheep as Christ's under-shepherds. The second thing we know about these pastors that are <clears throat> taking care of the flock is that they are appointed shepherds. They were appointed shepherds of God's church. And here, as we talk about the role of an elder in the economy of the New Testament and Paul and Peter's vision of what an elder is, He's giving reference to the example of the Trinity and the importance of the role of an elder and the office of an elder. I don't know if you see it, but we can look at it really closely. Do you see the reference to the Trinity in the appointing of elders in a local congregation? Paul highlights that here. He's showing us that in the fact that the blood price was paid by the Father through the Son, while the Spirit was the one who provided the overseers. The Trinity is a part of this economy of church leadership. That's why we here at CBC are in agreement with that style of leadership. So Paul tells them to watch over these two things, and then he says, be aware or be alert. Um, one of the things that happens is we kind of just drift and we don't notice or we get distracted by other things. And the first thing he tells us to do is to watch out for the savage beasts or the wolves. And this is in present sense for him because it's happening as soon as he leaves. And then it happens, he says, they're already here. <clears throat> but the savage beast is not so much about sheep dressed like wolves, but wolves dressed like sheep. Sometimes I think in the church we treat each other as sheep that are dressed like wolves. And what Paul is saying here, watch out for wolves that are dressed like sheep. But it can be both, can't it? It can be from within, it can be from without, but Paul here is saying watch out for those who are wolves dressed like sheep. The chief enemy of sheep in the Near East where Paul was writing this was wolves. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus actually mentions this, and Paul was probably drawing upon this passage. But Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. False prophets. Are there people today that are false prophets? Are there people behind podiums that are false prophets? Are there people that are lead leaders in churches that are false prophets? Are there people online in chat rooms and, and blogging that are false prophets? They can come from within just as much as from without. And just think of some of the characteristics of these wolves. Scripture mentions some of them, especially in Jude, the book of Jude. In Jude chapter, uh, verse four, 
it gives us a first inclination of what these wolves are like. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. In verse A, it says they rely on their dreams. They defile the flesh. They reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. In verse 16 of Jude, it says they are grumblers, malcontents. Uh oh. <laughs> Hope that's not me. Following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. In verse 18, it says they are scoffers, following their own godly passions. They cause divisions. They are worldly, and they are devoid of the Spirit. We need to watch out for people who are like that. You and I need to evaluate our own lives to make sure we're not being like that. The second thing he says to watch over is distorted doctrines. We need to be alert. Alert about what? Alert about the fact that there are false teachers that sneak things in or twist and distort the scriptures. He talks about that in Timothy. But in 2 Peter 2, 1 through 4, Peter also mentions this. He says, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. It's not openly, it's secretly. They'll even be denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. You know, when you think about our nation and its beginnings and its biblical foundation, the institutions, the universities, and their biblical and scriptural foundations and the godly men who started them, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, etc. you can go on and on and on. Many of those were started as evangelical Christian seminaries. And where are they today? They are denying the lordship of Jesus Christ for the most part. They are not shepherding the flock, that's for sure. The church in Ephesus apparently did not heed Paul's charge so well. As we look at the church of Ephesus in history, we find in Revelations 2.4 that they were admonished for not shepherding well. They had lost their first love. They did some things well, that's, that's good, yes, um, but they still needed to repent what was happening is they were over-focusing on the secondary things and not properly emphasizing the gospel of grace. You see, some people would say that it's enough to not do or not say wrong things, whether it's from the pulpit or in the ministries or even in your personal life. Oh, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not so bad. But there remains a need to heighten the focus on the main thing and doing what is right and best, not just good. There's an example in scripture, in Acts that we saw earlier that Ken took us through, of Apollos when he was in Ephesus. And Priscilla and Aquila come upon him and they find him preaching and it says that he was teaching accurately, but he was leaving something out. And so Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and they taught him to be more accurate. 
And I think that's something that Paul is talking about here. It's not just that somebody writes a book and I like the book and it has good things in it. It says, is it the best? Is it the more accurate gospel of grace? Is it the powerful word of God that transforms lives? Or is it just some man or woman's writing? So Paul gives these warnings and then he moves forward in his call for a commitment. He gives a charge, watch, be alert, be aware, and then he gives a charge. And he's calling the elders to commitment. And it's interesting that Luke has included this in his text. And he has given it not to just leaders of the church today. It's in the scripture today for all of us. And I think Paul opens the door for that in the words that Luke recorded when he says, this is among all those who are sanctified. And so as we talk about Paul's charge to the elders, I think it's something that we can apply to all of us, that we all can partake in this charge. And so St. Paul's charge rests on three things. The words of grace, which is the gospel message. It is able to build you up, verse 32. And the hands that minister, doing good works and helping the weak. And the third thing is remembering the words that uh, Jesus gave us. To give is better than to receive. And it's interesting that those words are nowhere in the four gospels. But Paul was aware and the church was aware that these actually were words of Jesus, probably recorded somewhere else. But Luke and Paul have them recorded for us here. It's better to give than to receive. And Paul is telling them that you need to focus on the grace. You need to focus on doing good works and helping the weak. You need to focus on being a giver. And giving isn't like, it's more blessed for me to give. It doesn't mean that it's not a blessing to the one that's receiving. Yes, it is. But it's more about developing in me the characteristic of God as God is a giver. And God has given us Jesus Christ. And so be of the character of God himself is a giver. And then Paul wraps it up, or Luke wraps it up by giving them the fond farewell. And it's similar to Jesus in the upper room where Paul is telling them, and Jesus was telling him in a little while I'm going to leave you. And Paul's telling him, I'm going to leave you. You'll see me no more. Kind of echoing Christ. I think Paul was maybe thinking along these lines. But he's telling them that his departure will be to their benefit. And that's what Jesus Christ said to his disciples. And it's interesting that later one of the church fathers, Ignatius, wrote about the church in Ephesus that there was a revival. So yes, they lost their first love, Revelations 2.4, but later on there was a revival. It's never too late to be under the presence of God and his leadership. And so Paul has affection for one another with the elders. Again, an example for us that there should be be affection among God's people. And we see that loving the church was important to Paul as we close here. If loving the church was important to Paul, it should be important to you, not just to the elders. Paul was anxious about the sheep being without shepherds, probably thinking about his own people, the nation of Israel, and how it says in Ezekiel 34, 5, that they were scattered as sheep without a shepherd. 
you know, the feathers on your back may get a little ruffled when you think of being under an eldership or a leadership. But that's God's design for his flock, for his church, to have shepherds who are shepherding the sheep. And if Paul was concerned about the church, and God obviously is concerned about the church, are you willing to be concerned about the church? Are you willing to be devoted to God's church? You see, CBC is. You are. The church is the flock of God, the Father, which has been purchased by the precious blood of the Son, Jesus Christ, and is supervised by the overseers appointed by the Holy Spirit of God. And if these three persons of the Trinity are so enmeshed and so devoted to the church, what will your position be towards the church? Richard Baxter in 1656 said this, let us hear these arguments of Christ whenever we grow dull or careless, maybe like the Ephesian church did. Ask these questions, or listen to to Christ's thoughts. Did I die for them and will you not look after them? Were they not worthy of my blood and are they not worth your labor? Did I come down from heaven to earth to seek and to save, and will you not go next door or across the street to seek them out? Have I done so much for their salvation and being willing to make you co-workers with me, will you refuse to do what little your hands can do? Now go and love on God's church. Let me pray for us. Father God, we just thank you for the example we have in Acts of Paul's life. Thank you that Luke recorded this sermon even though it was to the elders. It really applies to all of us. We pray that you would help us to put aside our our personal um, selfish ambitions to be able to serve as leaders and as members of the church, of the flock, each one of us responding to the leading of the shepherd and listening to the spirit as he leads and confirms in our hearts and testifies through the word of God that you are with us, that you are uh, shepherding us even in a time of separation through this um, sheltering in through this pandemic, Lord, we can still know that you are working in your people. You are here. If we would continue to hold to the right attitudes and motivate ourselves to, to serve, to, to work with our hands, to do what we can, to pray, Lord, we just ask for your, your grace. We pray that we would make grace the foundation of all that we do. For it is by your grace that we are saved and through faith in the one who came to provide us that grace. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.